it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. So glad to have you here broadcasting today from Chicago, Illinois. Thank you for listening between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I guess 2 and 5 p.m. here in Central Time. We always appreciate it. If you can't do that for the full three hours, there's a podcast for that. It is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. That's the handle there. A lot to get to on today's program. Peter Ducey, our Fox News colleague, White House correspondent, just asking some questions uh, now of the White House at the briefing today. Peter will join us later this hour to talk about those questions, sort of assess the answers that he's getting, and then also look back yesterday to the president's trip down to Mexico City. What did we learn from that and some of the Q&A engaged in by the president himself? In our next hour, Congressman Pat Fallon, Republican of Texas, he'll be here He is drawing up articles of impeachment for Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, because of the calamity at the southern border. He will bring that case to these airwaves in our next hour. In our final hour, Byron York of the Washington Examiner, also a Fox News contributor, he'll drop by talking about this story, this big story about the Biden papers. Classified materials, highly secret materials found in a closet in Biden's office, not in a secure area at some satellite office in D.C. where it should not have been. We are getting partial answers from the president and from the White House. Byron is here to give us his perspective on all of that coming up in our final hour. A lot to get to woke tales as well. Let's begin here. It seemed like maybe it was going to be a rough day for me to have booked a flight this morning. So I'm here in Chicago. I arrived today. I booked a relatively early morning flight to try to get out early, land as early as possible, get my bearings, get set up, and do the show. And literally, as I was getting ready to go to the airport, still pretty groggy, I'm not a morning person, I start getting text messages and alerts that the FAA's computer system, at least one of them, had gone down. There was an outage. And as a result, a lot of flights were being delayed and grounded. Then there was an order for all flights to be grounded for a while. So planes that were already in the sky could land, but they were basically imposing a ground stop on any flights taking off. I said, okay, here we go. I was like, is Secretary Pete Buttigieg in Tahiti or something? (laughs) It seems like... He's had some interesting luck and choices when it comes to some of the crises that have come his way in his portfolio. So I got to the airport and ended up just waiting a couple hours. It wasn't too bad. I was able to switch to an earlier flight because I got some intel 
that at least at Reagan Airport in D.C., they were going to try to start releasing the flights sequentially from the earliest flights that were supposed to depart earlier. So I, there were there were seats available. I went up to the counter and got switched, my seat switched onto the earliest possible flight, like the 6 a.m. flight that hadn't gone out. I got onto that one. And eventually they boarded us. It's like, okay, this is a good sign. Then the tweets started coming in saying that they might be like releasing the ground stop. Then the captain came on and said, we are released. We're going to be departing soon. Let's go. So we back up from the gate. We have departed. It was like a little bit of applause in the cabin. I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, okay, the timing is going to work out. Thank goodness this was a disruption, a headache, an inducement of stress, but ultimately not that bad. Then we stop going in reverse, backing up from the jetway, and we go back to the terminal. Jetway comes back, and they make an announcement that someone had requested to get off the plane, and they were going to accommodate that request. So we get there. They open the door. We're sitting there, and I guess what happened was someone else had done what I had done, switched flights, except I was carrying on my luggage. This person, I guess, had checked a bag. So she was insistent that she needed to make sure she could get her luggage. They said, well, we can't guarantee that because you're on different planes. Your bags are on that aircraft. You're on this aircraft. So they had made this clear to her. I guess she had made the decision that she wanted to stick with her bag. And we'd only pulled back maybe 50 feet, so... I assume she would get up and hustle off, maybe a little bit embarrassed, and that would be the end of that. But instead, she just sat there and I guess decided that she had changed her mind again. She would get her bag eventually. She wanted to stay on the flight. So representatives of United Airlines were coming back, talking to the flight attendants, like, what's going on? Finally, the, the captain, the pilot, had enough. He came back, had a talking to with her. People were groaning loudly. People were already a little bit on edge after a less than smooth morning, thanks to the FAA. And I guess she just put her head down and wouldn't leave. And so they're like, all right, fine. And the pilot finally said something like, to hell with it, we're leaving. (laughs) So then we left. We took off. I breathed a sigh of relief. And here we are in Chicago. Now, I mentioned that sigh of relief, but it wasn't quite as (sighs) cathartic as my sigh of relief when I saw this tweet from Ronald Klain, who is the White House Chief of Staff under President Biden because we were gripped with concern, frustration, alarm, uncertainty until America's leaders sprung into action. The White House Chief of Staff informing us, the public, and particularly us, the traveling public, quote, POTUS was briefed by at Secretary Pete this morning. POTUS has directed DOT and the FAA to restore the system, wait for it, quickly and safely, and to determine causes. At Secretary Pete will provide POTUS with an update later this morning. Folks, we need bold visionary leadership in this country. Damn it, we got it. 
Someone woke Pete up. He called the president. Then the president told him, fix it. But don't just fix it. That directive in and of itself might have been reckless. It might have cost lives. It could have wreaked untold damage, if not for the genius follow-up that the restoration of the system needed to be quick but also safe. Wow. I mean, some people doubt this man won 80 million votes. And then you look at this, you say, okay, I get it. Restore the system. Do it quickly and safely, Bal. And then Pete was going to call him back later in the day. Makes you proud to be an American, doesn't it? So thanks to that leadership, I made it to Chicago. We did it, Joe. We did it, Joe. Having a little bit of fun with this. But I do want to know what the hell actually happened with this FAA system. White House stated earlier that it was not hacking. That was my first thought, actually. Was this like, you know, some Kremlin operation? A retaliation for our continued support for the Ukrainians, which I fully endorse, by the way. I know some of you disagree, but that's my position. The Russians have been trying to create headaches and problems for us to get back at us, and I thought maybe this is it, like some creaky old infrastructure at the FAA. Maybe it was insecure enough that the uh, the old Ruskies got involved. But government's saying that's not what happened. So let's determine the causes. That was another part of that, I mean, truly exceptional directive from the president this morning as relayed from his chief of staff. But it's possible that this is just such old infrastructure and such an antiquated system that it just crashed. Let's wait and see. But it just feels like, especially when it comes to transportation, travel, right, and and various related systems like supply chains, You think back to the last couple of years, it has been uniquely troubled. And I think that formerly Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete, is maybe getting a bad rap on some of it, but not all of it. In fact, I'm writing a piece tomorrow for townhall.com that maybe we will revisit here on the air. Because I actually have more to say about this and about... Pete Buttigieg specifically, I think I want to defend him in certain capacities, but not in others. I know he was on with Brett Bayer on Special Report, what was it, last week? And all these lefties were clapping online like train seals, like, oh, he just destroyed Fox News. There's a fair question from Brett. Buttigieg got selectively indignant about part of his self-defense, but I think a lot of it Looks pretty weak. All right, some of the attacks on him might be thin, but other stuff is more substantive. He's a very smooth talker. In fact, Jim Garrity, National Review, I thought, had a really succinct one-liner earlier today amid the latest major hiccup 
in U.S. infrastructure and travel and transportation. It's the the realm that Buttigieg is in charge of based on shrug emoji. The guy was a small city mayor that had some actual transportation problems. Potholes and this sort of thing. A bus system, I think I read, there was a problem there. Then he ran for DNC chairman, lost, ran for president, lost, was historic in certain ways and had a base of support and a constituency within the party. So it's like, you got to find a place for Pete. Let's put him in charge of transportation. And I just don't really know what the qualification was there. And maybe that's beside the point. Maybe it's about, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion, a topic that we will revisit later on the program. I talked about woke tales. I teased that coming up in our next hour. There'll be a heavy DEI component to woke tales today. And, you know, Pete's a smart guy. I'm sure he has some competencies. This might not be one of them. And there could be a DEI angle to the fact, or I argue that there is a DEI angle to the fact that he's in that position. And is the country in good hands because of it? Not an attack on him necessarily, but Jim Garrity, as I was about to say at National Review, he said this. Maybe Buttigieg really is a relatively unaccomplished small city mayor with some exceptional presentation skills honed at McKinsey Consulting. Maybe that's uncharitable. Maybe it feels uncharitable and mean because it kind of hits pretty close to the truth when it comes to Buttigieg. And again, I'm not blaming today's FAA meltdown. On this, I do feel like given all the ludicrous projects that the government undertakes with new, big, crazy ideas to uproot systemic this or what, they've got all these initiatives constantly to grow and grow and grow the government, more taxing, more spending, increasing the scope of government. Maybe they can just like work on supply chain issues and FAA computer systems. Let's just start there. Just to name a couple ideas, just modest little basic competencies that sometimes get lost in these grand visions that are really about a lefty ideology of more government all the time. doesn't matter if they're doing the existing stuff extremely poorly. You just need more of it all the time. It's always the solution. So anyway, what, uh, what a morning it was, what an afternoon it has been. I got here, though. I'm in Chicago. I might talk about why. Maybe later on the show, maybe tomorrow. But once again, I just have to tip my cap, doff my hat to our president and his genius galaxy brain directive. Oh, fix the problem. Do it fast. Do it safe. We did it, Joe. We did it, Joe. Just getting started. On this Wednesday, it's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. We're changing people's lives. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I got a couple notes from folks during the break just about this FAA meltdown and the computer system that went awry today, causing all these delays, some cancellations, backlogs, 
general chaos at some of these airports, and I was caught up in some of that as I traveled this morning. And people were saying, well, do we really want to rule out cyber espionage by the Russians or maybe the Chinese? And my answer is definitely not, right? So far they're saying no indications of that, but maybe, first of all, they have indications and they don't want to go public with it yet for whatever reason. Maybe it needs to be looked into further. I think there needs to be a full explanation of it, make sure it doesn't happen again. But I think it's essential that we wait and see until we have all information. And I would not foreclose that possibility until there is concrete reason to do so. Now, one person that we might turn to for expertise, for clarity on this, which right now is a bit of a mystery, is someone who happens to be on his resume former FAA commissioner and one of the foremost cybersecurity experts in the world and an active Pan Am pilot, Congressman George Santos. Maybe we can get him on the line. Get him uh, briefing the president, too, on this. Who knows if he would have any more insight than the Secretary of Transportation? I actually don't know. But since I mentioned the Chinese, how about this story? Foxnews.com with the breaking news involving a congressman from Northern Virginia who has now fired one of his aides. And this is why an aide to Virginia Democratic Representative Don Beyer has been fired after an investigation concluded that she has been working on behalf of the Chinese embassy to set up meetings with congressional offices. The probe was conducted by the House Sergeant at Arms. It discovered that allegations against the aide, identified as Barbara Hamlet, were true. Byers' office was notified of the findings on Tuesday. She was subsequently terminated. The purpose of the meetings was for advocacy on legislation and foreign policy goals, a source familiar tells Fox News, adding that she did not have access to sensitive national security information, nor did she advise Bayer on foreign policy or national security. You sort of wonder, is this someone actively being a spy or is this an absolute moron? And are we sure that she didn't have access to sensitive national security information? Did she have keys to a closet in Biden's office, perhaps? That's mostly a joke. But on that subject, we will turn to Peter Ducey next. He just asked several questions of Corrine Jean-Pierre at the White House involving the Biden papers and more. We will get his reaction when we come back. Peter Ducey up next, Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free on demand when the show is over just after 6 p.m. Eastern time. With us now, Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent. Peter, it's great to have you here. Good to be back. Thanks, Guy. 
So minutes ago, you were in your chair at the briefing room and you posed a few questions to Corinne Jean-Pierre. One of them was about President Biden's comments and commentary on former President Trump's handling and mishandling of documents and classified materials and the whole Mar-a-Lago saga. That was back in September. We played the clip on the air yesterday. You read part of that back to the White House press secretary. Let's listen to that exchange. Cut 31. And then on these documents, how could anyone be that irresponsible? Isn't that what this president says about mishandling classified documents? The president spoke to this personally. He spoke to this personally. He, again, he believes that uh, classified documents and information should be taken seriously. He takes them seriously. And he was surprised to learn by any any records have been... I disagree. I disagree. Here's what happened. Here's what happened once his. Well, let me let me explain to you the process. Here's what happened when uh, his lawyers found out that the documents were there. They immediately turned them over uh, to their archives. Right. So we've got this talking point. We've got the official account from the White House and from Biden. He recited basically the same exact thing when he's asked about it in Mexico yesterday. Uh, What do you make of the White House response to this whole thing so far, Peter? Well, look, their response is that the lawyers did everything the right way. Okay, fine. Maybe they did. But that's not what the issue is here. The issue is that something wrong happened. Right. Like the lawyers doing something the right way did not stick these classified documents in a box mm-hmm. that nobody knows where they were the year of 2017, like at all, or the beginning of 2018. But then suddenly there's this think tank that opens up and there's documents there. Uh, we don't know where they were. We don't know who had access to them. We don't even know what they are. And what is so, you know, we just went through this all uh, with the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. It's possible that these things are so classified that we can never know. Like, they can't even tell us anything about the specifics or a topic of them. We we just don't know. And so uh, their response, it doesn't seem like we're going to get anything until the DOJ moved. But um their response is just dealing with, like, the the second and third steps that were taken, not the first step. Right, the discovery. The, getting, the, the yeah. alleged discovery and beyond, although there is another question about the discovery and beyond, which is why did the public not learn about it at the time, right before the midterm elections? The president was asked about that, did not answer that component of the question yesterday. But you're right about this in terms of how did these documents end up in that place where they shouldn't have been. I mean, no one's really disputing that. We know that some of the material was listed and marked as top secret or SCI, so extremely sensitive based on those markings, those classification levels. And then, Peter, I'm just trying to parse some of the language being used by Biden himself, by the White House. They're saying that he was surprised to learn. He was surprised that the documents were there. Uh, and that he did not get briefed on what they contained or what they were before they were handed over, that, to me, kind of sounds like they are trying to heavily imply that he had nothing to do with the documents getting where they were, but they're not actually explicitly saying that, are they? Right? Saying that he no. was surprised is different than he had nothing to do with this, etc. Th- those are two very different things. That's, that's correct, and, and that's all that there is to it. Meanwhile, you asked another question. I just opened the show talking about my very interesting adventure this morning getting from Washington, D.C. to Chicago based on the 
little mini FAA meltdown. I know so far they're saying there's no evidence of, you know, sabotage or uh, espionage or, or, or cyber infiltration by our enemies. I don't know if that has changed or if there's any update there. That was last I checked, a denial from the government. You did ask about whether this president maintains full confidence in his secretary of transportation, who's been kind of battered by a number of different criticisms involving his job performance, his priorities, some of his own personal travel. I know, obviously, the answer is going to be, oh, yes, of course, full confidence. That's always the answer until that, you know, changes, sort of tautological there. But what was the basis for asking that question? And when the pushback came from the podium, what was your read on that? I, look, the basis for asking is that uh, several of the biggest issues that this president has dealt with, like the first ground stop since 9-11 today, uh, this Christmas week Southwest problem two weeks ago, uh, the, the ports, which then screwed up the supply chains for weeks or months, uh, they say that this is all Secretary Buttigieg's responsibility. So, you know, it's something that we want to get her on the record about. And uh, we've got we've got it recorded, so we can we can go back and check uh, on the status of that as as things unfold. On the topic of immigration, it came up a few times yesterday. The president was in Mexico City. He met with the Mexican leader and the Canadian leader. They had that joint press conference, and we were dipping in and out of it on special report. I was on the panel, sort of waiting to see if we were going to make it to air or not. So I was listening in on a lot of it, and Biden was asked yes about. The documents, and we sort of addressed some of that. We'll talk more about that later with Byron York as well. He was also asked about immigration, and he had this to say, among other things, in Cut 19. Let's listen together. This has been the greatest migration in human history around the world, as well as in this hemisphere. And uh, when I got elected, the first thing I, the first major piece of legislation I introduced was to reform the immigration process to make it more orderly to make it more to make sure people have access under the law so you know peter i can editorialize on that all day if i wanted to but from your perspective i just think it's interesting because first he talks about this mass migration incident and this event like it's just organic and it came out of nowhere just like wow all of a sudden this thing dropped into our laps and we're confronted with this crisis I mean, that ignores the fact that his policies directly caused the crisis. It directly incentivized on a mass scale the exact event that he's talking about, like it was some sort of act of God, which it wasn't. It was people reacting and responding to incentives. And then he says, well, you know, this was about legislation, and I've introduced legislation, and I've recommended legislation. And he went on to say the Republicans just won't work with us. And whether he you're in favor of comprehensive reform or against it, or you'd be willing to compromise or whatever the position might be on legislation, there are executive actions that can be taken to ameliorate the problem because we know this President Trump had successful policies in place. They were almost uniformly rescinded by the new administration. The result is the result. I just don't really understand why they feel like this is a successful talking point to keep coming back to legislation, which might be some part of, I don't know, a future solution. But in terms of the here and now, there are tools at their disposal that they are making a choice not to use. Well, look, I don't see this as a Trump versus Biden thing. 
just because, you know, we're mostly just chronicling Biden here these days. Uh, but, you know, Biden said, oh, well, six months ago, uh, we realized this is a regional problem. We're coming up with a regional solution and it's working. Well, it, all evidence is to the contrary. Yeah, I, I think that's a succinct and accurate way of putting it. Finally, on this topic, Peter, you have been asking questions for, what, months now about whether or not, and you weren't the only one, other reporters asking these types of questions, commentators, members of Congress in both parties to some extent, but especially Republicans, asking the question, why hasn't the president been to the border? Why hasn't he gone down there? The White House, under the previous press secretary, gave you some some runaround about how, oh, yeah, he actually was there in 2008. He was in an SUV near the border, so maybe, you know, 15 years ago uh, he's been there. Uh, he wasn't there as vice president. He wasn't there on any sort of border fact-finding in 2008. Apparently he never went there even as a senator. He hadn't been there as president. They weren't really budging from that position until all of a sudden, in the middle of all the chaos down the street and the House of Representatives, they said, on second thought, Here's a couple new policies, and we're going. We're going to El Paso. Pack your bags. What was your sense on that about face, and what triggered it? You know, I heard some folks, Michael McCall was talking about this. Uh, he saw this, Texas uh, Republican congressman. He said, well, it's savvy by the president because uh, we're over here fighting for a week about who the speaker is going to be, and now Biden can just go. Uh, he thought that it was gamesmanship. Maybe it was, but uh, we'll see. You know, it felt like there was a lot of steam building up towards uh, immigration, working with Republicans with the new Congress last week. Haven't felt that this much. I felt that much this week. But again, we will see. Last but not least, before we let you go back to the Biden papers and the classified materials, obviously you asked about it. I did not get a chance. We were preparing for the show and, and on the air while this briefing was going on. Was there in your mind kind of a, a feeding frenzy in that room on this issue where there was a lot of questions and it was uncomfortable for the administration? Is there an appetite for a lot more information from your colleagues? Uh, what was what was the mood like in the room on that question today, that overall issue? Um, you know, it was it was pretty aggressive towards the press secretary. And if there's one thing that the White House press corps gets the most agitated about, it is issues of access. They see this as an, a transparency and access problem. We know that someone in the process knew about this before the midterms and someone made a decision in Biden world not to tell people that, you know, I think the questions will stop when they just tell us what happened. Yep. And I think uh, there might've been more than one person making that decision and the questions need to be asked and answered. And one of the people asking those questions faithfully daily, Peter Ducey, Fox news channels, white house correspondent, Peter always appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks, Guy. Bye-bye. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. We just asked Peter Ducey about the mood in the room. Was there sort of this, you know, ravenous dogpile over this issue of the documents the lack of forthcoming transparency about these classified documents. And Ducey said that, in his estimation, it was fairly contentious. And we want to bring you an example of that. Ed O'Keefe of CBS News had this back and forth with Corinne Jean-Pierre, Cut 32, 
I'm not going to go beyond what the president laid out. I'm not going to go beyond what my White House uh, counsel colleagues have stated. I would refer you to them for any other specifics or in additional information. I want to be prudent here. Uh, I want to make sure that we do this in appropriate, the appropriate well, way. We're going to ask them because that's our job. And I understand. So and, and my job is to answer your so questions. Here so here we go. Let's go. We ask this is because on like day two of this administration, when he swore all of you in, the president said, quote, I'm going to make mistakes. When I make them, I'll acknowledge them and I'll tell you. And I'll need your help to help me correct them. So you're the one here yeah, talking to us about this. That's why we're asking you. So let's just remember that. I, uh, when Ed, he was we, Ed, asked yesterday. Ed, Ed, I'm, we, don't need, we don't need to have this. We work very well together. We, do. I don't, we don't need to have this kind of confrontation. Ask your question, and I will answer well, them the best the that reason, I can. Part of the reason we're laying that out is because you're laying out your part of the job. We're I know, laying out our part of the job. I know, but I'm just saying question. that we don't need we to have contention. You don't need to be contentious with me here, Ed. Well, except she was like, I'm basically not going to tell you anything more than what's already been said. He's like, well, I want to ask questions anyway for these reasons. She's like, whoa, back off with the contention here, Ed. And that was still pretty kid glove stuff compared to, I don't know, the last administration, for example. But Biden said, I'll make mistakes. When I make them, I will let you know. Well, I guess they let us know what uh, November to December to two months later. Conveniently after the election, how does that comport with that pledge of transparency and coming up and fessing up and owning up in a timely way? I mean, it it absolutely reeks of politics, obviously. Meanwhile, some breaking news. So let's call this a Fox News alert. This just getting flagged. I'm seeing this now crossing on social. This is from now uh, NBC News headline. Biden aides find second batch of classified documents at new location. Aides to President Joe Biden, I'm reading from the NBC story, have discovered at least one additional batch of classified documents in a location separate from the Washington office he used after leaving the Obama administration, according to a person familiar with the matter. Since November, after after the discovery of documents with classified markings in his former office, Biden aides have been searching for any additional classified materials that might be in other locations he used, according to the source, who spoke on the the condition of anonymity. The White House did not return a request for comment. The classification level, number, and precise location of the additional documents was not immediately clear. It was also not immediately clear when the additional documents were discovered and if the search for any other classified materials Biden may have had from the Obama administration is yet complete. Biden aides have been sifting through documents stored at locations beyond his former D.C. office to determine if there were any other classified documents that need to be turned over to the National Archives and reviewed by the Justice Department. Well, isn't that interesting? I still feel like the discovery of the highly classified materials at the private office is the biggest story here. But there's a lot of vagueness in this. This could turn into something bigger. At least one other trove. So that's at least one. Does that mean more than one? They're leaving that door open. And it was at a different location. It wasn't in that office or wasn't in that closet. It was somewhere else. 
Where is that somewhere else? Was it a private residence? Was it someone else's office? I mean, this is not enough. And you wonder if there's one or more additional tranches of classified information found at places that we you know, aren't disclosed yet. Then where does this go from here? Are there more? Now, the NBC story, I'm just eyeballing it here, says that these aides believe that their search has been exhaustive. It sounds kind of like the, the sequence was the lawyers supposedly were packing up this office at the Biden Center connected to, you know, Penn, but it's based in D.C., packing it up to move the president and his stuff. And in the process, they were like, oh, here's a folder. Here's some stuff. Oh, wow. This says classified. This says top secret. This is concerning. Apparently, this was November 2nd, six days before the election. They handed it over to the National Archives the next day, the 3rd, five days before the election. At some point, the National Archives referred the matter to the Department of Justice. There was a universe of people that knew about this problem, this scandal, whatever you want to call it, for quite a long time. Because there were big, like, public, significant developments in the Trump Mar-a-Lago classified document stuff, which is the same but different in various ways. We've talked about that. We'll talk about it again. For weeks, and none of this came out. People knew. They made a choice not to mention it. Then I guess the aide said, uh-oh, there could be more of this stuff elsewhere. So they went looking, and they found at least one additional pack of classified material. We don't know where. There could be more. Just more questions now arising from this, based on this NBC News report. We're following it. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show from Chicago today. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News Alert. The Dow up today, 268 points at the close, just about to kiss 34,000. 33,972 at the closing bell. And with that, let's get to our next guest. It's Congressman Pat Fallon, a Republican from Texas, the 4th Congressional District down in the Lone Star State, a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And, Congressman, it's good to have you here on the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You have drawn up articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Chief, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, This is something that had been rumored for a while. Some Republicans were considering doing this if Republicans were to win back uh, the House. Of course, that's what happened, and you guys have gotten now down to business after a brief interlude last week. Give us and walk us through maybe the thought process of why you feel like this is the right course of action. Well, no, thanks, Jerry, and that's a great question. So Alejandro Mayorkas has engaged in a clear pattern of conduct. It's It's incompatible with his duties as an officer of the United States. And I'll give you a couple examples. He violated the 2006 Secure Fence Act, 
which requires the Homeland Security Director to maintain operational control. Imagine that, operational control of our southern border. Another example is with his catch and release policies, he's violating the Immigration and Nationality Act that was updated in 2004. So that's one article. There's three total, okay? Another one, another example is he's in violation of his constitutional oath because he willingly provided perjurous and false and misleading testimony to Congress. He was asked if he felt the border was secure. He said the border was secure. And then he got caught on a hot mic admitting that it was chaos and it was unsustainable. And then this is the, personally for me, the last article really just infuriates me. He knowingly slandered his own hardworking Border Patrol agents who we send out into harm's way to protect your family and mine by saying that they whipped migrants when he knew emails have now shown that he knew that that was not true. And yet he still peddled that false woke narrative. He's unfit for duty. He's unfit for office. And we need to remove him forthwith. So I agree with you that all of those things speak very poorly of his job performance. And I have been extremely critical of uh, his role and what he's done and what he hasn't done to the points that you made. And I get it. I think there's a lot of frustration out there. I know it's been a very long time, I believe well over a century, since a cabinet official was successfully impeached. Obviously, you've got a Democratic Senate. This isn't really going anywhere. I guess the follow-up questions would be, just to push back a little bit, number one, is this a constructive use of time and political capital? Let's start there. I honestly think it is, because if we look at what's happening on the southern border right now, it is beyond a catastrophe. It's near collapse. And, guy, consider that there's been never in our history was there more than 200,000 illegal border crossings in a given month. It had never happened before. It has happened for the last nine months in a row. We only have 193 countries in the world. 160 of them have citizens that have crossed the border illegally in recent history. We've got 100 people that are on the terrorist watch list. Five million people have crossed our border illegally under Joe Biden's watch. Not to mention the cartels. They're a terrorist organization. They should be named as such. They make about $25 billion a year, which is really the size of a GDP of a small nation state. And they're throwing another $13 billion on top of that with human smuggling. The drugs make them $25 bill, 13 more for human smuggling. And it's at the cost of American lives. We've, we lost 107,000 people to opioid overdoses in 2021, and Joe Biden's doing nothing about it. And what this will do is show the American people the truth of his abysmal job performance and his impeachable activity, and it will also show history as well. All right, so then the second challenge would be this. Let's say, through some uh, freakish twist of events, that you were successful and articles of impeachment were to pass the House, Mayorkas would be impeached, and, I don't know, the, the Democrats in the Senate had some sort of aneurysm. They all decided to to vote to remove the guy from office, and he's gone. Whoever they put in there next would still be carrying out the policies that ultimately don't emanate from or originate from Alejandro Mayorkas. They come from the very top, from the president himself. So I'm wondering, is this, and I'm not calling for the impeachment of President Biden, but ultimately, is it the right tact to effectively go after an underling who is simply carrying out the disastrous and intentionally, in my view, failing policies of his boss? I think, and that's a fair question, I think that what will happen is, in real politics, 
because this is such an, a rare event. In fact, if he gets convicted, it'd be the first time in history this happened. From a political standpoint, Joe Biden has signaled, by the way, guys, that he is running for a reelection by visiting the border. He ignored it for seven, two years, which is roughly 17,000-plus hours, and he spent three of them on the border, and he thinks that we're going to take his commitment to the border seriously. We're not. But if we fire, if the legislative branch fires and removes his Homeland Security director for simply for him to rinse and repeat, it would be a disaster politically. I mean, he can do it. But I would think that he would probably have to readdress and maybe stop listening to these pro progressive, woke, hard lefters that are advising him and actually become the centrist that he claimed to be during the campaign. Well, I think Mayorkas has done an absolutely terrible job, um, uniquely terrible in our history. And I think some of that's on him because he's standing there and doing it with a smile on his face, having sworn an oath himself. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the strongest points in favor of coming after him this way. But ultimately, he is carrying out the wishes of, of a president who might be up for re-election in two years. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Meanwhile, Congressman, and relatedly, I want to get your reaction to a few sound bites. The president was in Mexico City. He stopped over in El Paso on his way down to Mexico. He met with the Mexican president and the prime minister of Canada as well. And during their joint remarks and a press conference last evening, a few things happened. President Lopez Obrador of Mexico at one point thanked President Biden. Listen to cut 18. Unfortunately, it used to happen in the past. We have said this, and I repeat it today. I insist on this. You, President Biden, you are the first president of the United States in a very long time that has not built not even one meter of wall. So that was the voice of a translator, obviously, as Lopez Obrador personally thanked Biden for being the first president in a long time to not not build any additional wall along the border. I mean, I, I guess that was meant as a compliment from the Mexican president to our president. And I would imagine our president took it as a compliment. But I think to a lot of Americans' ears, that is an indictment. I think that I want to thank President Obrador for penning an R a Republican National Committee ad for 2024. If I, if I, I would run that ad. I would run that as an ad, literally. That's what Joe Biden has done, and he's proud of it. Borders and barriers work. I thought it was very ironic that after January 6, 2021, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were so fearful that they erected fencing and walls all over D.C., to protect themselves. And I would always say, I thought they build, I thought they built bridges, not walls. Apparently they do when it's uh, their hides at stake. So at the end of the day, guy, that our number one most important job is two things, to keep Americans free and to keep them safe. But if you're not safe, then you're not free. And Joe Biden's not taking this seriously. And American lives have been lost because of his gross dereliction of duty. Meanwhile, one more clip that I want to play for you in Cut 20. Biden had said that really the problem here lies with you, House Republicans, right? He's, he's made this point before. It's one of the talking points from the White House. Wherever this comes up, whenever this gets raised, they say, well, Biden had an immigration plan. 
I put it out there early in his presidency. The Republicans didn't want to do this comprehensive immigration reform, and so they're not part of the solution. It needs to be a bipartisan solution. Uh, and, you know, I would just note, and we talked about this last hour with Peter Ducey a little bit, there are things, setting aside legislation, and I could be behind legislation that's designed well, that is focused exclusively at least to start on enforcement, but even if the Congress just didn't exist for the next year, you guys all went on vacation or went into recess, there are a few things that the president can do with his pen to just reinstitute succeeding policies that he canceled after he took office, right? He undid some good policies, some succeeding effective policies from President Trump for political reasons. He could redo those very same things with a stroke of that pen. And it just seems to me, we'll listen to cut 20 when he says this, but it seems like this is a bit of a red herring. Listen. My proposals are supported by the Chamber of Commerce, by the American Labor Movement, I mean, which is an unusual coalition, and a whole range of people. The point here is that uh, uh, my Republican friends in Congress should join us in the solutions. So he's putting the ball kind of in the court of Republicans in Congress coming together on legislation. When you hear that from the president, what's your response? Do you think it's fascinating that a president whose party controlled all three levers of federal governance is blaming the minority party for not getting something done legislatively? It's remarkable. They could have gotten it done. They own all the levers. They could have put it, put it in a reconciliation package, uh, in, uh, and they didn't. And you're talking about bipartisan. For the last two years, they completely ignored us. Literally, they wouldn't respond to our letters. They wouldn't respond to our requests. No Democrats talked to Republicans when they penned trillions of dollars in spending bills. And as far as he, him saying he inherited a problem, it's not President Trump's fault. Here's the facts, guy. In April of 2022, it was the worst month we'd ever had on record, 234,000 illegal crossings. That was 1,258% worse than the last April President Trump had been in office. It was 12 times worse. The very next month exceeded that, 241,000, which was 930% worse than the last May that President Trump had been in office. Joe Biden's policy, just as you said, he should reinstitute the weight Mexico policy. He should build a border wall. He should uh, deport criminals. There should be expedited removals. And people that overstay their legal visas should be penalized. There should be consequences. He's done none of that. Yeah, and the Democrats, further to your point, because there's the executive path, the executive action path, which he's not taking in a productive way for political reasons, pure and simple. If they wanted things that work, we know what works on this front. They are deliberately choosing not to do those things because they have Trump's imprimatur. It would infuriate their you know, left-wing activist base. But it's not like this is some giant riddle that no one can solve. I'm not saying it would completely fix the problem, but it would seriously improve it. He doesn't want to do those things. And then he talks about bipartisan solutions. I think that there's not really a lot of appetite out there for big, comprehensive solutions that involve all sorts of things, including incentives to come here illegally or anything approaching an amnesty, when there's such an overwhelming need for infer- for pure enforcement measures, first and foremost, before anything else even gets discussed. And as you said, Democrats for two years, they don't anymore, but for two years they controlled everything, the House, the White House, the U.S. Senate, of course, as well. And whether they could have gotten this done through reconciliation there, I think, would have been like, you know, germane 
challenges on, on some of those provisions. They didn't even try. This was not a top priority. But they're pretending sort of like it was for Biden. It's just the Republicans' fault. I mean, it's the same old song over and over again. I just don't think it plays. It doesn't comport and align with the facts. And I think that's part of the frustration that is built and built and built, perhaps spilling over in, for example, articles of impeachment against the DHS secretary on this very issue, which were introduced this week by Congressman Pat Fallon, Republican of Texas, our guest here on the show. Congressman, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks, sir. God bless. Happy New Year, and we'll see you soon. Likewise. Guy Benson Show back after this very short break. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So this story continues to develop. Fox News alert. Reports emerging from various sources now, initially reported from NBC News, that Biden aides have discovered at least one additional trove of classified material that Biden had in his possession or under his auspices somewhere. They're calling it at least one additional trove of classified materials. At a separate location, so not the office in question connected to his program or his institute through Penn. That was the D.C. office where this first group of classified documents were found, apparently, supposedly by his lawyers while they were cleaning out a closet, including top secret and SCI information reportedly, at least in part, dealing with Iran and Ukraine. That was the office number one. This would be location number two or beyond because the way that this is worded suggests that there could have been more than one collection of classified material, additional classified material found by Biden aides and representatives because I guess they found the original stuff in that closet and then set about searching all over the place because they worried maybe there was more, and now we know there was more. We don't know what it was aside from classified documents, vague. We don't know if it was one additional file or multiple additional files. We know that it was found, or they were found, at a location other than where they should be, first of all, in a secure location under protocol and the law, and also beyond that closet in the private office. So we're talking about at least one additional location, if not more, based on the verbiage here of the story. So obviously there are a bunch of questions. There were already a lot of questions about the original, and I still feel like the core of this, although now it's expanding, right? This is a problem. I said it on special report last night. This is a problem for the White House and the president, and now the problem is getting bigger. And whether this impacts the DOJ and their decisions when it comes to Trump and potential charges there, I think that's, at this point, almost undeniable that it would become a factor. You don't charge Hillary Clinton for her egregious, appalling misconduct and criminality on this front. And now you've got a swelling, growing problem for the sitting president in the same realm. But you're going to go after Trump 
in between those two figures. I just don't know how that's tenable. Just off the top of my head, I know KJP didn't want to answer any more questions about it. Well, now with this, she's going to have to answer more questions. Where were these additional documents found? What kind of documents are we talking about? How classified were these materials? Was it just one additional group of files or was it more? And the key question for both of these discoveries, who put them there? Did Biden have a role? The fact that they haven't ruled that out explicitly suggests to me that he probably did. That's just my deductive reasoning. A story we continue to follow. Woke Tales coming up next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're at the midway point of our broadcast week on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. We've been following a couple different stories out of Northern Virginia for quite a while now here on the program. One of them, of course, was that sexual assault scandal and cover-up replete with lies and now firings and indictments in Loudoun County thanks to Governor Yunkin's insistence upon a special review and investigation into what happened at two high schools in Loudoun County. Then at nearby Fairfax County, there's a separate scandal afoot. We brought you some of the details just a few days ago involving national merit honors for the top echelon of students not being handed to those students with those families and those kids not being made aware or flagged that they had won these honors prior to deadlines for college applications. And as the story went, as we reported, and we were quoting from Fox 5 in D.C., you've got this district has adopted a mantra of equal outcomes as their goal, not equal opportunity, equal outcomes, which is both impossible and immoral, in my view. It was decided by someone that it would be unfair to the vast majority of kids could hurt their feelings if they didn't get national merit honors, and therefore they would withhold the information from the kids who had earned it for some reason. Right? This is equity, quote-unquote, and justice run amok. And this was disproportionately harmful to certain kids in particular. It's totally outrageous. And we brought you... The latest development, which had been that Governor Yunkin again in Virginia had requested that his attorney general open a civil rights investigation into this. Because this wasn't just a bad little policy and an oops. Oh, gosh, we had these things in the mailroom and we forgot to send them out. This was a proactive decision that was made on behalf of equity by any number of adults who made this call. And there were adverse impacts for students, for their futures. And so Jason Miaris, who's the AG in Virginia, said, yes, we are absolutely looking into this. So that is where we left off when it comes to this question and this whole episode. There is now an update, and I think the update also falls into the category of woke tales. According to the Fairfax Times, principals at multiple additional Fairfax schools have now admitted that they also withheld National Merit Awards from students. Many of the kids impacted are Asian Americans, 
And there was speculation that this could perhaps broaden out the civil rights investigation from the government of Virginia and the attorney general in the Yunkin administration. And that's exactly what has happened. Yunkin expressed concern. Miyaris expanded his investigation. And Yunkin applauded, saying, yes, please pursue this aggressively. And, of course, that's the right thing to do. Quote, while Fairfax County Public School Superintendent Michelle Reed claims the principal at Thomas Jefferson High School, this was the original high school, withheld National Merit Awards from students in a, quote, one-time human error situation, parents at two other local high schools got a Friday and Saturday night surprise. So the initial lie, apparently, was, oh, this was just once they caught on to what was happening, once they got caught, let's put it that way, once they got caught actually pursuing their goal, which is equity and equal outcomes and justice, whatever that word means, they got caught pursuing this woke, bogus, toxic nonsense. And they tried to say, oh, this was a one-time human error at Thomas Jefferson. And then they realized, oh, wait, this was more systemic. You might call this systemic bigotry or systemic racism, actual systemic racism, actual systemic injustice. This was happening at other schools in the district as well. And so the principals at these other schools started over the weekend sending out missives saying, oh, golly gosh, looks like we did this too. So sorry. One principal saying, I must apologize. Certificates were not distributed to these Langley High School students in the usual way this past fall. So parental reaction has come pouring in. The TJ, meaning Thomas Jefferson, the TJ rot spreads, one parent wrote in an email. And I guess there's message boards and chat rooms lighting up on this, email threads. Here's a furious parent. A father, quote, school district officials are deliberately sabotaging our kids' lives in the name of equity. It's cruel, if not evil. Think of the despondency they are creating. We are feeling a cascade of emotions. The apology is empty. We trusted the school system with our son. They betrayed our trust. Now, what these school officials are saying is that, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to reach out to some of these colleges. This was done in error. Whoops, sorry about this. But the article points out college admissions decisions have already been made. Life-changing, potentially life-altering decisions, including rejections, have already been made based on incomplete information because important information about achievement and merit were on purpose kept away from the students for some absolutely sick alternative version or vision of equity and what fairness actually looks like. So the die for some of these kids has been cast, arguably in error because of what happened here, with the excuses being contradictory and sort of blowing up as they go along. It is disgusting. And that is just one little example of something that is happening in one county, in one state. Now, it happens to be a very blue county right outside Washington, D.C., so it's getting a lot of attention. But you just have to wonder, if this is happening in Fairfax County, Virginia, where else are little things like this, insidious 
assaults on achievement and merit and excellence underway. Kind of makes you shudder a little bit. I'm very glad that Glenn Youngkin is the governor of Virginia. This stuff would all be swept under the rug, ignored, maybe even applauded. If Terry McAuliffe had won that election, you think you'd have a Democratic attorney general aggressively going after this stuff? Their pals in the education bureaucracy in Northern Virginia? I don't think so. And this is the type of mentality, I think, that helps underscore how sick, how twisted wokeness and equity can get. Josh Krasauer, who's one of our regular guests here, quoting from a piece in the Free Press about DEI, how DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's the acronym, is supplanting truth as the mission in higher education in America. And one example comes from UC Berkeley, no surprise, Northern California, often the belly of the beast. Some of the worst things in the country originate in California. And if there's Glenn Youngkin fighting in Virginia and Ron DeSantis, we'll get to him here in a second in Florida, fighting in the other direction on this, you better believe that Gavin Newsom is going to do not a single thing to oppose the creep of this stuff in his state because he supports it. This is the madness that has a death grip on the Democratic Party and therefore the government of the state of California, which is just a one-party state. So at UC Berkeley, this is a public university getting taxpayer money. They have a rubric for evaluating DEI contributions, which is used by universities all across the country when making hiring decisions. They can't do specifically racial hiring anymore, like racial quotas. That's been struck down. So instead, they have these rubrics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's their way of doing it. And listen to this. Under UC Berkeley's rubric, a low score will be assigned to a candidate. This is someone trying to go teach at UC Berkeley, a new hire, or someone seeking tenure or promotion at Berkeley. You get a low score assigned to you to a candidate who professes the desire to, quote, treat everyone the same. A fundamental value in our country and in our society is and ought to be treating everyone the same, certainly under the law. You want to talk about real equality and fairness? That's what the definition practically looks like, treating people the same. Doesn't matter what genitalia you have, doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is, doesn't matter what your gender identity is, doesn't matter what color your skin is, doesn't matter what religion you have or faith tradition you were brought up in, none of that matters. You should be treated the same. You should be treated equally. That is actually fair. That is actual equality. But at Berkeley, that's verboten. If you say that you want to treat everyone the same, that is a critical strike against you in the DEI wars. Think how perverse that is. So in this story that I just mentioned, it goes on to say that to, quote, increase the likelihood of hiring minority faculty members, and that word can mean a lot of different things, minority. There's a lot of boxes to check out there these days. Cluster hiring initiatives often, I'm quoting, often assess candidates' contributions to DEI as the first criterion. 
not merit, not qualification, not what they would bring to the table for students in terms of intellectual rigor or background or expertise or talent or any of that. Hiring initiatives often assess candidates' contributions to DEI as the first criterion, most important, number one. Absolutely ass backwards. I don't know what else to say. And as I mentioned earlier, I think if you are Gavin Newsom, the government of California, this is exactly what you want. This is sort of the vibe out in California. These are their values out there now. And to keep this in check, to try to limit the damage, to try to contain the rot and the metastasizing, I would say, social cancer of this stuff to certain places, you can't achieve that by just sitting back on your laurels, complaining and hoping that it doesn't happen. Passivity isn't going to work. That's why I think the affirmative, proactive steps in Virginia are good and helpful. Like, you have to draw some lines in the sand, you have to hold those lines, and you have to fight. You have to go out and win elections and have power. None of this happens if Youngkin doesn't win. And Youngkin doesn't win if he doesn't attract a lot of independent voters, for example. You've got to win first. You've got to win people over. You've got to attract their support. You've got to paint a vision that people can get behind. And by the way, they have in Virginia, where Youngkin has a very good approval rating now. Plus 20 was the last poll that I saw. And then you have to deploy that power, use that power, in a way that makes sense, judiciously, smartly, and for a purpose. Spend that political capital where it counts, where it matters. This is an area and a realm where it counts and where it matters. So good for Youngkin. Meanwhile, in Florida, I told you I'd get to Ron DeSantis. This was a new development just a few days ago. This is a memo from the governor's office. All state university and college systems in Florida have now been required to report expenditures and resources utilized for campus activities related to DEI, as well as critical race theory. So DeSantis and his administration saying, if you're going to spend money on this stuff, taxpayer money on DEI and critical race theory, we want to know exactly how much money is being spent and where. It's time for an audit. I think that's the bare minimum. Taxpayers in Florida have a right to know that. This is also sending a message from the office of the governor on down. There's also a new board of trustees being established by DeSantis at a place called the New College of Florida, which was just apparently going off into crazy left-wingville. And DeSantis said, okay, I'm putting my people on this board of trustees, including a number of strong conservatives, among them Christopher Rufa, who's been on this program. He is an anti-woke warrior. He's a guy out there trying to take a battle axe to DEI every single day, the excesses of this stuff. He gets slings and arrows from the left. They hate him. They hate him so much that they actually print some really lazy hit pieces on him in the media, and he gets them to have to retract and correct the record over and over and over again. Well, DeSantis, I think, smartly identified that work, rewarded that work, and put him on this board. Right when conservatives say they want politicians to fight, It can't just be fighting stupid battles for the sake of fighting and raging and pounding the table and demonstrating and advertising how angry you are about the left or whatever's happening. The fighting has to be targeted, specific, 
and smart with a purpose. This is an area where the fight is needed. It is necessary, but it still has to be smart. And if you want examples of that, I would direct you to the governors of Virginia and Florida right now. They're not the only ones, but for the purposes of this segment, this conversation, I wanted to let you know and just highlight these incidents and juxtapose what's happening with that leadership versus leadership elsewhere like California. This stuff matters. Can't just sit back and hope for the best. We're way past that. Yunkin, DeSantis, they seem to get it. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show, continuing on our Woke Tales theme, and this comes from foxnews.com. Headline, Marvel star Kumail Nanjiani claims Hollywood is reluctant to cast, quote, brown people as villains. So this is interesting. Pretty big Hollywood star from the Eternals, from Silicon Valley. You might recognize him if you see him. I've noticed some people have said, well, you know, here's a leftist, and he helped create this whole problem, and maybe so, right? Sometimes people contribute to a problem and lend their voices to an atmosphere that ends up actually having unintended consequences, and they end up looking around saying, okay, what have we done here, actually? And if that can be a learning experience, then that's good. If you don't learn anything from it, then I'm not really sure you can be helped. But at least he's saying this, which I think is useful. This actor, Nanjiani, admitted that Hollywood is now limiting the types of roles, quote, brown actors can play. In an interview with Esquire UK, the Marvel action star claimed that though it's born of good intentions, is it, Hollywood's commitment to diversity limits roles for people of color. He said that's because... Producers, Hollywood generally, is now reluctant to cast non-white people as bad guys. So this is actual racism, where it's like, okay, well, we don't want to have people of a certain skin color be bad. That, well, we can't have that. So let's make all the bad guys white. And therefore, actors and actresses of color who might want to play villains, villains are a big part of entertainment. They're shut out of those roles because they have the wrong skin color. And Hollywood wants to literally virtue signal through what turns out to be anti-virtue and could end up hurting and typecasting and limiting the horizons of people of color in that industry. It's just funny how the whole revolution sometimes ends up eating itself in different ways. And this is one of them. And all of that, my friends, is Woke Tales. When we come back, Byron York is here on the Biden papers. His analysis straight ahead in our final hour. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the Wednesday Happy Hour from Chicago today. On the Guy Benson Show, happy hour sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Just a delicious product that I love. I recommend it if you're 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. See where they are sold near you. A lot more places around the country now than even a year ago. TheLongDrink.com. TheLongDrink.com. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Lots of other content on that website. 
GuyBensonShow.com. If you're interested specifically in the podcast, which is free and on demand when the show is over, you can also check out FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your free podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And as we begin our final hour of today's program, let's bring in Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, it's great to have you here as always. Thanks very much, Guy. Good to be here. All right. So yesterday we were watching the president along with his counterparts from Mexico and Canada at the podium, and they were all giving their reactions and responses to their summit down in Mexico City, and they opened it up for some questions. And one question was asked of President Biden by a reporter about this classified documents development. And it was a multi-part question. He didn't really answer all of the parts of the question, but he did go to the notes. We know what the official line is. Here it is from the president's own mouth yesterday, cut seven. As soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives. And I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. It went on, cut eight. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've My lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon. So, Byron, something he didn't answer that was asked, why are the American people just finding out about this now when this all went down in early November before the election? I think people might draw their own conclusions about that. You don't have to be a tinfoil hat conspiracy enthusiast to perhaps formulate a couple ideas on the delay and why that might have occurred. But as for the rest of this answer, he's basically saying, as soon as we discovered this, we've done exactly the right thing, fully, fully cooperating. I had no idea that there were any classified documents there. I was surprised to learn there were any government records in that office. What do you make of this? I don't know anything, and I don't want to know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, start out with just uh, just the original premise here. It's November 2nd, 2022. So he's, what, a year and 10 months into his presidency. And he says, when my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, by that he means the Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C. When they were clearing out the office, they set up an office for me, a secure office in the Capitol, when I – then he says, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn. Well, he wasn't really a professor. But the deal is, okay, why are they setting up an office for him in the Capitol? The president, by the way, maybe not everybody knows, does have an office in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, it's a ceremonial office, and most presidents don't use it. Were, were they setting something up? And if, if so, why were they doing it in November of 2022 when he'd been president for a year and 10 months. I I just can't figure out what's going on and why is it that you use lawyers to clear out your office? I mean, I would probably just hire some people to put stuff in boxes and move it. But um, there are a lot of questions here about the very beginning of this. And then there is the timing. This allegedly happens on November 2nd. The uh, midterms are November 8th, and obviously just just imagine it was a superheated political atmosphere. 
Imagine if the story had come out. Biden possessed classified documents, you know, just just like Trump. It would have been a huge, huge outcry in the last six days uh, before the election. And finally, elections on November 8th. On November 15th, Trump announces his candidacy for president. And November 18th, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, announces that he has um, hired Jack Smith to be the Trump special counsel. So the question is, well, and by the way, when he did days. that, still nary a mention of this whole thing that went down, which was supposedly reported to the DOJ either on November 3rd after the archives took possession of this material or shortly thereafter. We're talking about not just the next week, which was the election, but then weeks later was this special counsel announcement. Nothing. Crickets from this crew. So Merrick Garland knows this, knows that there's a Biden situation going on, too. And according to the earliest reporting, uh, Merrick Garland hires this U.S. attorney from Chicago to look into it. The New York Times is portraying this as kind of a preliminary investigation with the hint that there's there's going to be an actual uh, investigation about this. But I just you just have to wonder why what's going on? Why is he having his lawyers clean up this office and setting up an office for him in the Capitol? What what did he even mean by that? Yeah. Um, very unclear. No, that is kind of weird now that you mention it, right? I hadn't even thought about those pieces. I was just taking what was right in front of us and saying, okay, let's talk about the timeline. Let's rewind the clock to his time as vice president, which is the era from which these documents apparently originated. You're making the point, just in case people are just tuning in or trying to kind of digest all of this, you're making the point, Byron, that it's awfully weird to have a team of lawyers cleaning out an office that you don't use at some private sector university slash organization that you're a major part of. Weird to have the lawyers doing that. Weird to have them moving in to some other office in the Capitol, apparently. Don't really know what came of that, if anything. Or is that just Biden conflating things and getting confused and giving a timeline about what the move was about incorrectly, which has to be considered as a very realistic option here as we try to figure out just that little piece of it. Yeah, that's always a possibility. And then, of course, the the vice president at the end of his remarks in Mexico City said, well, we'll be looking into this and we'll have more in the future, meaning I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, the president. I'm not going to tell you anything more right now. So um, we, we need to just figure out what is going. I am not saying this is the equivalent of the Trump case. No, it's not. But, but there are a lot of things we don't know about the Trump case. For example, what were the classified documents that we also don't know about the Biden case? What were the classified documents? Right. The only report that we've seen is that they had to do with Iran, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom in Biden's case. They were from the period when he was vice president, the Obama era, so he didn't even theoretically have the power to declassify them at the time. Trump did with his documents. At least he had the authority to do it while he was still president. There's no evidence that he did that. You can't sort of retroactively say that you did it in your head and up telling anyone, uh, which is kind of the tack that Trump took on some of this stuff. But on the Biden timeline again here, Byron, there's a couple other elements of this that are strange to me. One of them is, and this is a fundamental one, if Biden 
is professing shock and surprise that any official records were in that office at all, let alone classified material, let alone top-secret material. Why were they there in the first place? How did they get there in the first place? Who brought them there in the first place? And are we truly to believe that Biden had nothing to do with any of those things, any of those questions that I just asked? And I raised this a little bit yesterday as well, Byron. You would think that if this was someone else's mistake, someone else's fault, that Biden had no knowledge of at any point in time, that would be one of the proactive affirmative defenses we would be hearing from the White House and from Team Biden. We haven't heard that yet. Andy McCarthy told us yesterday his understanding was perhaps these were located in a folder that personally belonged to Biden himself. So it seems like a couple of the big questions, very simple stuff, we don't have answers to, and perhaps the lack of certain defenses or talking points could be rather telling at this early stage already. I think you're right about that. And the, the, the stress stress on the stuff we don't know. Well, you know, and, and, and he was also he was vague yesterday. Was it was it in a, a drawer? Was it in a box? Was it locked? Was it not locked? What was the situation? The early reports were that the classified documents were commingled with other uh, non-classified documents that's similar to the Trump situation. Um, but the, the thing is, is that we were told for many, many months that this was a very, very, very serious situation to have a former high official uh, possessing classified documents in his home or in some non-secure area. We were told that this was a really, really serious thing. What's been remarkable, if I could shift just a little bit to the media coverage that we've had, is that so many journalists just sprang into action to tell you, to make sure that you understand that these cases are completely different. They have almost nothing to do with each other. And the Except, line and, 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 and the problem, of course, and you're right, that's exactly what they've done, the problem is, at its core, there is one crucial, inescapable similarity, which is these are highly classified, sensitive, secret documents in the possession of people who shouldn't have them located in places where they shouldn't be. That, fundamentally, is the similarity, and I understand why partisans might want to say, or even you know, honest brokers might want to say, well, these two cases are different for material reasons, for meaningful reasons. Here are those differences. And that's true. I agree with that. They are different in terms of scope, in terms of scale. And some of that cuts against Trump. A lot of it does, I would say, a little bit might cut against Biden. I made the point yesterday, it doesn't really matter relative to each other's situations. If you take them each individually, it's a problem for both of them. But you're right. The media began acting, much of the media, as a rapid response war room, basically, for the Biden White House. Like, uh-oh, our guy, our team, our tribe has a problem. Let's figure out how to get graphics up on the screen as soon as humanly possible with bullet points explaining why the other guy's problem is actually worse and they're not really the same. That doesn't strike me really as context-adding journalism. There's a component of it it felt and read a lot more like protecting the team. And I think you're right about that. 
So I just wanted to say that. Byron, stand by. Let's take a very quick break. I want to come back to the issue itself. What does this mean now, legally speaking, in the context of politics for Donald Trump? I think that's a key question. We'll try to tackle it next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Byron York, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Now, Byron, shifting back to the issue itself and the politics of it and then the legal side of it, neither one of us is a legal expert. However, I've now seen enough pieces written and talking to Annie McCarthy here on the show yesterday. One of my first thoughts when I started to really go through this information after it broke was when you consider the Hillary Clinton email server scandal and the systemic, deliberate mishandling of classified information, huge amounts of it at extremely high levels with malice aforethought, clear intent, destroying evidence, lying about it incessantly. That kind of comes on the front end of this whole thing. And then bookending the Mar-a-Lago fiasco in the middle is now President Biden, the sitting president with his own problem, not exactly the same, but in a simple way, similar enough, same enough. If you've got Hillary on one end, Biden on the other, and then Trump kind of sandwiched in the middle with one similar theme running throughout, it just seems to me that unless the Justice Department really wants to turbocharge the overall impression among many, many Americans that we have a two-tier justice system and the system is rigged and there are double standards to the point of corruption, if they want to blow that out of the water, they can move forward trying to charge Trump, having not charged Hillary, and God knows what they'll do with Biden. It seems like either the case against Trump criminally on this front is dead because of this, or they're going to have to maybe think about charging Trump and Biden, which would be unprecedented, or they're just so partisan that they don't really care, and they'll do the selective thing anyway. I'm just not sure that they want to necessarily detonate that button here. I guess the upshot is it seems to me that legal liability for Trump on the classified document handling at Mar-a-Lago is much less dramatic than it was 48 hours ago in terms of real politic. Do you agree? I do. I do. I agree that this makes it more difficult uh, to prosecute Trump. Uh, but I do want to just add one caution to this that I've added the whole time through the, the Trump uh, situation is we have to remember that we don't know what the documents are. Yep. We have heard them described as the nation's most sensitive and important secrets, secrets that people have given their lives to safeguard. And yet at the same time, we know there is an overclassification problem in the U.S. government where many, many things are classified that don't really need to be classified. And we don't know the seriousness of the issue. Um, after all these months, we don't know it about the Trump case. And after just a couple of days, we don't know it about the Biden case. So I would caution people. Yeah, no, I think that's a very uh, good ward of warning. And I think that you're right. And it's funny because the Clinton people were the ones warning and admonishing people about overclassification and that whole issue back when her server was a problem. Then some of the Trump people started using that same argument themselves. And lastly, to your point, Byron, the folks who were telling us, oh, no, what 
Trump had down there was the most sensitive stuff ever. It's sort of coming from sources, unnamed sources, that have not necessarily fed the American people truthful information on a bunch of different things as it connects to President Trump and now former President Trump. Uh, So that's another credibility problem because we don't really know what's in the documents. You're right. Same with Biden. We have some kind of general sense of it, but that's about it. And then you've got the same Justice Department here. I'll just underscore one more time that leaks like a sieve all over the place about Trump and did for years. They kept this high and dry out of the public eye for days leading up to an election. I think a lot of people look at this and they say, I'm willing to say maybe Trump's situation was worse But some of this stinks, and if they start going after Trump and not Biden, having not prosecuted or charged Hillary, I think that that would really do some damage to an already damaged public perception of our justice system, of the Justice Department, and hopefully we'll get a lot more answers. That's what's key here. We don't know a lot of things. It's important to say that over and over again, a point repeated several times wisely by our guest, Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Byron, always appreciate it. Enjoyed it, Guy. Thanks very much. You will step aside, come right back. More of the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, the 3 p.m. hour Eastern time, Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent, joined us once again, going through and talking through the president's trip to Mexico City, a number of questions that he attempted to answer, other questions he didn't answer. Here's part of that conversation with Peter Ducey. So we've got this talking point. We've got the official account from the White House and from Biden. He recited basically the same exact thing when he was asked about it in Mexico yesterday. Uh, What do you make of the White House response to this whole thing so far, Peter? Well, look, their response is that the lawyers did everything the right way. Okay, fine. Maybe they did. But that's not what the issue is here. The issue is that something wrong happened. Right. Like, The lawyers doing something the right way did not stick these classified documents in a box Mm -hmm. that nobody knows where they were the year of 2017, like at all, or the beginning of 2018. But then suddenly there's this think tank that opens up and there's documents there. Uh, We don't know where they were. We don't know who had access to them. We don't even know what they are. And what is so, you know, we just went through this all uh, with the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. It's possible that these things are so classified that we can never know like they can't even tell us anything about the specifics or a topic of them we, we just don't know and so I, their response it doesn't seem like we're going to get anything until the doj moved but um their response is just dealing with like the the second and third steps that were taken not the first step right the discovery put, the, getting the the yeah. alleged discovery and beyond although There is another question about the discovery and beyond, which is why did the public not learn about it at the time, right before the midterm elections? The president was asked about that, did not answer that component of the question yesterday. But you're right about this in terms of how did these documents end up in that place where they shouldn't have been? I mean, no one's really disputing that. We know that some of the material was listed and marked as top secret or SCI, 
So extremely sensitive based on those markings, those classification levels. And then, Peter, I'm just trying to parse some of the language being used by Biden himself, by the White House. They're saying that he was surprised to learn. He was surprised that the documents were there and that he did not get briefed on what they contained or what they were before they were handed over. That, to me, kind of sounds like they are trying to heavily imply that he had nothing to do with the documents getting where they were, but they're not actually explicitly saying that, are they? Right? Saying that he no. was surprised is different than he had nothing to do with this, etc. Those are two very different things. That's, that's correct, and, and that's all that there is to it. Meanwhile, you asked another question. I just opened the show talking about my very interesting adventure this morning getting from Washington, D.C. to Chicago based on the little mini FAA meltdown. I know so far they're saying there's no evidence of, you know, sabotage or uh, espionage or, or, or cyber infiltration by our enemies. I don't know if that has changed or if there's any update there. That was last I checked, a denial from the government. You did ask about whether this president maintains full confidence in his secretary of transportation, who's been kind of battered by a number of different criticisms involving his job performance, his priorities, some of his own personal travel. I know, obviously, the answer is going to be, oh, yes, of course, full confidence. That's always the answer until that, you know, changes, sort of tautological there. But what was the basis for asking that question? And when the pushback came from the podium, what was your read on that? I, well, the basis for asking is that uh, several of the biggest issues that this president has dealt with, like the first ground stop since 9-11 today, uh, this Christmas week Southwest problem two weeks ago, uh, the, the ports, which then screwed up the supply chains for weeks or months, uh, they say that this is all Secretary Buttigieg's responsibility. So, you know, it's something that we want to get her on the record about and uh we've got we've got it recorded so we can we can go back and check uh on the status of that as as things unfold my full interview with peter ducey white house correspondent here at fox news available at guybensonshow.com also on our free podcast the whole show on demand no charge every day guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts when we come back gratitude A thank you from me to several members of this audience. An incredible, heartwarming story that you want to hear straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch from the Windy City on this Wednesday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast. Every day on demand when the show is over, which is very soon. Before we go, I do want to tell you about something very cool that happened over the holidays. I was off the air, had a week off, so we didn't discuss this on the air. But if you follow me on social media personally, at Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram, you might have seen this. I just want to give you an update in case you had missed the whole thing or had missed the resolution. And I've been holding off until there was a fairly solid resolution, which came to, I think, a conclusion just last night. Here's the backdrop, and I've been working on this behind the scenes now for well over a year. We have family friends, my family does, 
who we got to know when we were living in Hong Kong. I was there as a kid, lived there for almost seven years when I was a child. My brother was born in Hong Kong. And at church, there was a family that we got to know pretty well. They have a daughter who's roughly my age, then a son who is roughly my brother's age, and our parents were close. The parents of this family, the mother and father, who are, I would say, roughly my parents' age, are devoutly religious people. I believe that he was a pastor. They might have been missionaries. I'm trying to remember exactly what their background was. But we knew them through the church in Hong Kong. And we stayed in very loose touch through the years. My parents were better at keeping up with them. I have not seen any of them in years. But my dad, gosh, probably in 2020 or 2021, let me know that their son, their younger of two kids, we're going to call him for the purpose of this conversation, John, was a decorated combat veteran in the Marine Corps. And he had served multiple combat deployments in Afghanistan. During his second deployment, he was in an MRAP, and it hit an IED, and he was wounded. He had to be airlifted to a hospital. And he still has some after effects, including some hearing loss to this day, from that incident while he was serving our country. So he got honorably discharged from the Marine Corps, moved back to North Carolina, and started to make a small life for himself, a living, being, during the warmer months, a landscaper, and in the winter, someone who would remove snow and plow snow. And this is a fairly Spartan existence. He is not making a ton of money. He does not live anything close to a lavish lifestyle. I think I'm really understating it here. But this is what he was doing. That is how he was making ends meet. And then around Christmas two years ago, so Christmas 2020, he was plowing. It was freezing out. There was snow on the ground, heavy winds. And there was an issue with his snowplow, the truck. And he was trying to fix a wheel on the truck, and he accidentally got pinned under this truck in very cold temperatures. He was ultimately able to get to his phone and dial 911, but he was stranded for close to an hour in these temperatures. He could have died. He was suffering from hypothermia. Eventually, he had to get part of his hand amputated. The closest VA hospital, VA facility, was hours away. They needed to save his life, so they brought him to the closest hospital that they could. And the bill, after all was said and done, was almost $50,000. Right. So this is a childhood friend, served two tours, selfless, brave hero, now in the private sector, running this one-man tiny business, almost died because of this incident. And because they couldn't get him to a VA hospital, just a mammoth bill dropped on his desk after all of this. He had no ability, and his family, no ability to pay for this. So they went to work trying to get that $50,000 or so reduced. They were able to negotiate a little bit with the hospital. It came down a bit. They reached out to their congressman, who did not respond at all. That is now a former congressman, by the way, who's been replaced, Madison Cawthorn. Uh, there's now 
a new congressman in that district. Senator Tom Tillis, who's been on this program multiple times, I put Tillis in touch with this family. Tillis did his best to help, and his staff was involved in multiple phone calls. And ultimately, they reached the end of the road where they couldn't really do anything more. Anyone, right? All of the appeals to the VA had been exhausted. They weren't playing ball. The influence that Tillis or anyone else could exert reached an end of the rope. And John was looking at a bill of just shy of $30,000 still. He'd been paying it back in tiny increments. He just can't afford it. I had suggested all the way back when this was first brought to my attention a GoFundMe-type crowdfunding event. I said, I bet you there are a lot of people in my audience who follow me on social media, who watch Fox, who listen to my show, who would want to help someone like this. And frankly... I just think it's a disgrace that someone who served our country this way could have an incident like this and be left high and dry the way that he was. We have government health care for our veterans, but because of these technicalities, it was like a hot potato that no one wanted to take. So I had said, why don't I grab the hot potato, put this out publicly, we can withhold his name and his face if he doesn't want to go that direction, And maybe we can get a good chunk of this paid for by patriots who want to help. And John is just a very quiet, private, humble person. And he hated, this is my understanding through my parents and through his parents, he hated the idea of taking someone else's charity. He believes in duty. He believes in honor. He believes in paying debts that you incur. He doesn't want other people's Help, he felt like this is something, you know, personal responsibility, all of that. Plus, he wanted to really explore and exhaust all of the options available to him in terms of outside help, whether it was talking to the VA or intervention from politicians or what have you. Finally, when he did feel, I guess, cornered, right, up against that wall, he finally relented and through his parents said, okay, and I'm sure he, through gritted teeth, said, I guess let's do it. Because, look, he was staring at debt for years, years and years. To some of us, I, mean, I think to all of us, a dollars $29,000 debt is enormous. To some people, it is absolutely crushing and debilitating and disruptive to the rest of your life. That's what he was looking at. So I said, leave it with me. I talked to a couple of people. We put together this GoFundMe. We have a photo of John, but his name is blacked out. His eyes are blacked out in the photo. And I just put it out on Twitter. I put it on my Instagram. I put it on my Facebook. And I asked a few of my friends with big followings to also help amplify this appeal. And the appeal concluded this way. The residual amount, nearly $30,000, roughly $27,000, $28,000, remains well beyond John's ability to repay in any reasonable time frame without causing him financial and personal distress. I'm saying for a long time. Having exhausted all other options, I wrote, and with great reluctance, John and his family have finally accepted my offer to try to help with a GoFundMe on his behalf. He's whittled the amount down that he owes to approximately $30,000, but he's at the end of his rope. I'm keeping his identity private at his request, stemming from his reticence about accepting any charity at all. You have my word that he is a real person, an American hero in need of help. If you are financially able and so moved, Please help us remove this burden from someone who served our country with great valor and selflessness. It's the least we can do. 
And then I added this, finally, if we hit the goal, we will not expand it. And the goal is $30,000. I said, thank you for considering, and I put it out there. And this is where the story becomes, I think, incredible and inspirational. And by the way, I'm not using this segment to ask you for any money, to ask you to contribute, because I was off the air over the holidays when we were doing this, within less than 24 hours. It was about 22 hours from the moment that my very first tweet went out that this thing was live, the very first time I asked anyone to consider contributing. Within 22 hours, the entire goal was met. Hundreds of people, many of them strangers, donated amounts from 5 or 10 bucks all the way up to $1,000. 451 total donors, $30,305 raised in 22 hours. Then we shut it down as we promised. I told my parents they were blown away. They called their friends, his parents, John's parents, and gave them the news. They were apparently in tears. Something of a Christmas miracle. Thanking God first and foremost, and also expressing incredible appreciation to each and every one of those 451 people who donated. And by the way, I donated some myself to get the whole thing kicked off. So I've heard from them. I hear that John is in the process of writing a letter. I talked to John's dad last night. The bank transfer is now underway, and they are going to set up a meeting with the hospital to officially write the check, retire the debt, and set John on a new path, a debt-free path after this terrible incident. And I wanted to share this with you not to make myself look good, like, oh, look, I did this thing. This is on behalf of this guy who earned our help. And now that it looks like it's finally been resolved completely, I wanted to not only share that little piece of good news, which I think really underscores the greatness of this country, the kindness of people. People want to help. I got multiple notes from people saying, a wounded Marine veteran who needs help, say no more. They took my word for it, and they just sent 100 bucks or whatever it was. I am confident that some of those 451 donors are members of this audience. I know that for sure. So if you were one of those people, I just wanted to on the air thank you personally. And if you missed the whole thing and you're just learning about it now, we're not opening it up. We're not asking for more money. Mission accomplished. Thanks to so many of you. In an incident that started in a horrible way, was a real trial and tribulation for this guy and his family for a couple of years. And then we collectively, as Americans, were able to give them a gift. And that is very satisfying. We are a good country filled with good people. And one of our best needed our help. And collectively we delivered. So thank you. I just wanted to say that. Sometimes we have fun and do goofy, ridiculous stuff during this final segment. Not today. A little bit of a different home stretch. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place. I'm sure the home stretch will go back to preposterous tomorrow. You have my word. In the meantime, thank you for listening and have a great night. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.